Before we get into today's episode, I've created a short questionnaire that will help me get to know you better. Those that fill out the questionnaire will get entered into a draw to win an Amazon gift card. So there's a link in the description for the episode. Click it, fill out the questionnaire, and I look forward to hearing your feedback. Now for today's episode. This is The Michael Bryan Show. Hi everyone, welcome back to the show and today I'm joined with Irina Zuckerman who is a human rights and national security lawyer based in New York. She also is the editor-in-chief of the Washington Outsider which is a project with Scarab Rising which she also is a big part of. So Irina, thanks for joining me. This is going to be quite a fascinating conversation today. Thank you so much for inviting me. So let's talk about your background as a lawyer to start with. I'd be really curious about how you got involved. What was it like moving through the different areas that you were a lawyer practicing in? I imagine you can pick your your area to a certain extent. So what was that like for you? Well, I've wanted to be a lawyer since basically junior high school. And I also knew I wanted to incorporate some sort of international uh, elements into that. Um, after 9-11, I, you know, I got to see a lot of it firsthand. I also felt that I kind of wanted to contribute to resolving the issues that were uh, happening all around me. I wanted to contribute to security-related issues somehow. But it was, you know, a, a bit of a long journey. I studied Middle East. I studied international relations in college when I went to law school there was an opportunity to study national security law specifically. And my law school for them was one of the forerunners. Now it's a trend. Now many law schools across the country uh, have that area and they have centers on national security. But at the time I was starting out, it was still relatively rare and limited. And it was a bit of a novelty. Um, as an area of expertise, I mean, many Law schools offered uh, separate courses here and there, but most lawyers went into very practical uh, areas where you could make money quickly. Um, some of the ones who would go into public service, basically criminal justice, studied more criminal law oriented topics, but even those were limited to things that are relatively well known and uh, broadly speaking, affects most of the populations. So national security topics, counterterrorism, cybercrimes were still very niche at the time, even though um, even though counterterrorism cases were hitting the news every day. Uh, I became uh, a part of that group of people who was very much invested in that. We started a chapter of uh, National Security and Law Society. Uh, did a number of events with different speakers from uh, from the U.S. government, uh, from various areas on the topic. The classes also brought in practitioners in various areas. It was all very, very interesting. But after graduation, I still needed to have uh, to, <laughs> to have a job, and you don't just you know <laughs> go from graduating law school to becoming <laughs> you know some senior counterterrorism advisor or anything <laughs> like that. Um, and it was also the middle of a, basically a financially fraught era 
uh, there was a financial crisis that started in 2008. I graduated in 2009 when major law firms were falling apart and even local DA's officer, offices were not hiring as many people as they used to. And to the extent they hired anybody, those were people deferred from law firms who were basically uh, uh, paying government institutions to hire the lawyers that they were supposed to pay. So I ended up having to start my own practice with no financial backing whatsoever and no practical experience to speak of. That was a very <laughs> interesting experience. And I can't say that my early cases were particularly uh, inspiring on Sintelli. <laughs> I was just taking whatever <laughs> walked through the door to make to make money and to learn how to how to be a lawyer. But a few years into that, I had an opportunity to assist pro bono with a human rights case. And I discovered that this was an opportunity to be doing uh, something meaningful in my free time. And I de dedicated myself to the area. But as I navigated um, the area of assisting people who were mostly stationed abroad, these were not Americans, providing them with the immigration uh, advice, providing them with other services, I found myself, first of all, branching out in operational areas far beyond the legal expertise and also learning that human rights law and security issues are frequently intertwined in surprising ways and that many people going into the area are not necessarily prepared for that. So there's a lot of mistakes done even by the most well-meaning individuals. And um, down the line, years later, I realized just how much corruption and mismanagement and outright manipulation there is in that particular area you would think that when you're trying to help people okay you make you know sometimes misinformed decisions sometimes you make mistakes but that most people going there are well intentioned and will still try to do their best on the contrary i found that the one area that due to the shortage of resources it's fraught with with various agendas and political manipulation by parties who can invest and who are looking to get something out of it. So eventually, I actually transitioned more towards strictly security issues, bringing in my expertise from that field to actually uncover the very issues that I noted, because I realized that not only are clients not being well served by corrupt organizations and and completely politicized entities, but they're also causing significant issues in other areas that you would that you could never imagine by using the their image and reputation as a cover for nefarious activity and for manipulation and for outright fabrications. What I would love to get your opinion on is this balance between all of the resources and all of the priorities and all of the smoke and mirrors and you said essentially manipulations where they say one thing maybe do another thing balancing all of that can be so confusing like unless you have the information at hand which most people don't you can't possibly make an informed judgment on the situation so when you've got like climate you've got financial crisis you've got the food crisis that people seem everything's got the word crisis in it is what i seem to be finding um and i wonder if that's part of it where maybe it's not as bad as like you think of crisis and you think oh god here we go and it probably isn't that bad how do people make 
these informed decisions? How do they balance the whole thing? It seems like they're never actually going to get it right. There's always going to be some intended consequence or unintended, depending on the situation. How do people make these decisions? Well, making a sound decision and getting the correct information that is necessary to make sound decision depends on two factors. One is the individual's critical thinking skills, abilities, and uh, and whatever comes to them from their own experiences and professional or personal backgrounds. So this is something that can be taught, cultivated, both by individual choice and by institutions along the way, families, schools. The fact that it isn't uh, a lot of the time is a major failing, but it can and should be addressed. And we've seen some countries attempting to address it. Um, so on the one hand, it's a mixture of these actual skills that help you parse through information and at the very least raise doubts and questions instead of accepting narratives. And a lot of the information sphere is not about providing facts for people to judge for themselves, but about providing narratives and selling agendas. It's marketing um, of particular interest uh, that has replaced journalism investigations and information sharing, because that's how you make money today. Journalism is not being funded for providing the truth. It's being funded on the basis of public interest and um and engagement and that leads to again this sort of manipulation so in order to get through all of that you need to have the skills to be able to see what you're being sold and by whom so this basic lack of critical uh, thinking skills in the public leads to manipulation to polarization to demagoguery by various parties whether it's corporations trying to uh sell their products and gain competitive advantage through the information sphere or governments trying to manipulate the narrative and uh, meddling within public opinion or you know even the u.s government trying to uh, substantiate its own uh, policy with to its own public or various political candidates trying to maneuver their way into uh, gaining public support whether or not they actually deserve it um so uh, so the problem is soft power institutions which are institutions that provide uh, avenues for information uh sphere and they range from the media to education public and private and higher level education such as universities to you know lower level education such as schools um uh to think tanks and ngo and ngos um all of these institutions are part of soft power basically because it's a the way um for anyone whether it's a government a corporation funding them or an organization to project their sphere, their power to project their own ideas. All of these um, spheres have been have been turned to particular agendas. It's it's their responsibility to inform correctly and to provide guidance and information. But this is not really how anything works ever anywhere on the planet. It's not just the U.S. or Western world or English speaking world. It's everywhere. These institutions reflect biases, they reflect agendas, and they reflect investments from whichever party backs them. How do all people tend to actually process all of this? If you think about the idea that you get voted in, which mm -hmm. makes me think of it as a popularity contest, how many people can agree with you, essentially, mm -hmm. mix that with 
the marketing side of things. Is this why a lot of politicians or people in power tend to say one thing before they get into office because it's what they need to say to get people to vote for them versus what they do when or if they get elected or, or voted in? My first thought at the time was, well, maybe they don't have all the answers when they're busy marketing themselves to get in, but when they get in the the car, so to speak, under the engine, they see everything that's moving, and they think, "Well, I can't actually do what I said I would do because now I have all the information. It's completely impractical to to go ahead with that." You know, when people say, "Oh, we'll reduce taxes," or "We'll increase the minimum wage," or whatever it is, mm-hmm. and then they realize that in order to do that you've got to shift all these gears over here to be able to afford to do those things, which then impacts things in other ways. And it's the only way they can actually follow through. And what they originally said was to take from some other policy or way of doing things. And they simply won't do that because of the consequences that they didn't realize when they were marketing trying to get voted that sort of thing it's that's what i thought where they didn't have all the information until they were in office and now they are in office they realize it's completely not doable but then am i wrong is it actually the fact that they now don't want to they just said whatever they said and now they're actually going to enact the thing that they originally wanted to do but couldn't tell us because they wouldn't get elected that way uh, that's only part of the picture, although it is certainly part of the picture. I can't imagine that everyone sets out to be an intentional liar. I do think a lot of the time the politicians tend to try to want to accomplish what they set out to accomplish, whatever that is, you know. Uh, the problem isn't just the political machinery of it all and the logistics and the practicability of enforcing their own agendas. The problem is who drives the actual politics, and it's not the politicians themselves. It's mostly their staff. And the staff is informed by a variety of sources, from their own personal agendas to broader agendas of the political office, to the sources that are made available to them, and they have limited time for all these many issues. So whatever sources they they happen to come across or someone sends them, that's what they tends to inform their opinion and, and their political groupings, of course, and, and so forth. And also lobbies. You can't underestimate the role of lobbies, but the problem is you can't outright limit or ban lobbying because it's frankly illegal. You want people to be able to contribute to the political process by sharing their perspectives and to fully inform the things. What's illegal is corruption, um, quid per quo exchanges for politicians to adopt particular uh, positions without fully weighing in the interests of their constituency. That's illegal, but the lobbying process in itself not. Unfortunately, all too often it gets abused. So the it's up to each individual person to stay as informed about the agendas and as unbiased and objective and uncorruptible as possible. So the problem is not the process. The problem is, is always the people and their choices. So a lot of problems human-based problems then like corruption makes me think okay well maybe it's just friends doing each other favors it sounds a bit weird to call it corruption if you understand my my kind of reasoning with that is everyone's friends they're all doing things for each other which at our local level between friends doesn't seem so bad when your favor for want of a better expression is i don't know cutting costs of oil let's say 
because I helped you out back in high school and you owe me kind of thing. It seems a very weird conversation to have when corruption in layman's terms is doing each other favors and doing things for friends and it's, it's a similar kind of thing but corruption is also a version of manipulating something like i do something for you you will inevitably need to do something for me um, it makes me think of like um conspiracy theories in a way you know when there's a conspiracy theory about something and no one really knows if it's true or real or mm-hmm. even even remotely real sometimes it's literally just a marketed thing to stir the pot a little bit and keep people guessing in a way what is actually true then how do people actually navigate this whole thing in a world where everything is simply well marketed whether it's true or not makes me think if something was true and it was put out there for everyone to absorb to see to hear to feel that it was real would we actually trust it or are we just too suspicious now and too like, well, maybe this isn't real? How do we navigate this whole landscape? Because if we think about climate change being the obvious one, how do we know what's real, what's not, whether we're even impacting it ourselves at all? How much of a difference do we actually make? Everyone has their own opinions and supposed facts about the situation but if you're someone that wanted to actually get the facts of a situation let's use climate change as an example where do we actually go for that because you won't know what's right from wrong anymore well here's the thing political compromise is an inevitable part of the process because when you have many people in the same room uh, or many interests in the same room of course they're going to have to clash and figure out uh avoid moving forward it's not you know as long as it's and and everyone tries to get something out of it for their own constituents and their own interests and that's fairly normal what's not normal is when politicians outright sell favors um and when they have no spine to stand up to pressure whatsoever and don't get the job done that they were elected to do at all whatsoever so if you want to judge a politician look at whether they where whether and how often they're willing to adopt politically unpopular decisions unpopular both with their colleagues whether in a parliamentary body or local council or with their administration and whether they're willing to push what they claim that they set out to do based on their best information available um and also sometimes stand up to even constituents instead of just going along with whatever is in the media and whatever appears to be popular because sometimes the public you know does not have the best judgment or the full access to information particularly on foreign policy and security issues i would say the public should have a lot more say on local issues because they're the ones directly affected and they're the ones um seeing the situation firsthand but with uh, a lot of foreign policy decisions it's exactly the opposite you don't always see the big picture as a local person it's it's um uh, so in that case sometimes the you, you have to see whether the the government will just follow whatever is the local flavor of the month or and whatever makes them popular and whether they're sometimes going to have to do the very hard job of persuading the public about their interest in providing facts and being transparent about their own decision making and and that's how you judge whether the person is being sincere whether whether they're willing to learn from their mistakes to not only apologize but to correct the course of action and say this is why i did this previously 
additional information or past experience show that this is not the right way. I'll try to do better. And this is how I'm going to do better. And these are the steps I'm taking to make sure that it actually happens. So, so you can actually see see whether someone is sincere or whether they're just you know going along with the flow and saying whatever they want. There are ways to distinguish amid all this you know uh, all this uh, fog of war of the political process. You can you there are ways to discern uh, who is the real deal and who is just a demagogue trying to score political points. There's a part of me that was actually praying that there was some kind of secret special website somewhere where the public can go and go, ooh, let's look into climate change. And then it brings up all of the, the actual facts so that we can, because we can't process everything, but if there's something that we're particularly passionate about, there's like a, a Google of things that impact the planet and you, you go in and you get facts and, and figures and someone looks at it and goes, Oh, so that's what's going on. That's the percentage that we are impacting climate change or some actual data on maybe the, the pandemic that we've had and, and things like that. And is there one or can that even be manipulated slash changed? And you're basically just having to judge everything for yourself and hope that you're getting the right information if that's the if that's the case. Well, with respect to complex uh, to complex scientific or other issues, you always want to look at who funds the studies because depending on who funds it, you can generally see the the agenda behind it. And most people actually do not do that. They they see the study produced by such and such university and they assume that it makes it completely valid. So you have to weigh in different studies against who funds them, what their interests are, what they're and what they're actually specifically saying. Are they really saying uh that this source of energy is superior to the to this other source of energy? And if so, on what grounds? Is there only agenda um, you know, zero, uh, uh, zero emissions, car uh, carbon dioxide emissions. But should that be the only criteria for environment to evaluating environmental impact? Should you be looking at maybe other types of emissions, for instance? Should you be balancing against other benefits? Should you be looking at the level of recovery for that type of emission? Because if it recovers within a few years, then it doesn't matter, even if it's a lot, a lot as much, because nature has a faster way of dealing with it, whereas if it takes a very long time to recover, then it's likely to make lasting damage, and then you should be more concerned about it than if it isn't. So, but of course, that requires some, again, level of critical thinking, asking questions, and being dedicated enough to actually do your research, and that goes for literally any topic under the sun, because you always want to find out who benefits from a particular path, who, you know, why would they say this and not that? That's how you look at this outright disinformation versus information that may be um, accurate to some extent, but serves a particular agenda. And therefore, you have to be careful, not because it's a complete fabrication, but because it's not necessarily the full story or it may be true under some circumstances and not and not others. And that's why you know there are usually no simple answers if somebody tells you well the way to protect the environment is to ban all emissions <laughs> you can be sure that this is <laughs> that whoever is doing that is trying to sell you something <laughs> yeah, because if you yeah. go to experts they will tell you 
there are no easy answers because you have to balance environmental impact and what you know and the fact that the science is evolving and the research is um the research scientific research is evolving and what we know about the process Robin, with the economic impact, the fact that people simply, you can't burn everything all at once and expect not to have a revolution, <laughs> for instance, and um, and the uh, security impact of the implication of choosing a particular type of energy. If you, if you find, uh, there is no, for instance, ideal type of energy. Uh, all types of energies have their pros and cons, and you have to balance. And ideally, you have diverse sources. So you're not dependent on anything or anybody in particular. You don't want to be energy dependent on other countries, and you don't want to be dependent on one source of energy then then becomes unavailable for whatever reason or is not sufficient to support your infrastructure. So, um, so you, unfortunately, every time you, if you hear exactly what, seems emotional or appealing from either angle, it's usually not the full truth at best, and most likely you're being manipulated. Real answers to serious complex issues, foreign policy, security, domestic, you know, environment, they're never simple, black and white, or, you know, easily discernible. They require a lot of hard work, and they they may be changing constantly. You can be constantly evaluating. You, you want to sanction some Country, but you make sure you're able to enforce it. Slapping sanctions without being able to enforce it is not going to be the right course. And sanctions are a foreign policy tool. They're not a, a panacea to all, to all ills. So you have to balance different tools that you have to be able to come up with the best, best foreign policy course of action to deal with the transgressor, for instance. So you, you have to think w about what makes sense, whether you're actually able to enforce it and show that you are dedicated to that course of action are you willing to course correct along the way and change tools depending on, on what you find out if you know or are you just going to be driven by inertia and the easiest course of action and do whatever you've been doing whether it works or not that sounds like a pretty difficult choice and then you as a lawyer have to go in and pass all this information, compile it in a way that makes sense. And it's like trying to make a slightly better mess of the mess that you've been landed in and hope that you can make it a bit more of an effective mess. Um, it must be so complicated for someone to really make sense of it. And I suppose that's what other people are there for. They have access to the information. They have access to some that are more factually accurate than others. And all we can do is just hope that the person in the best possible position can make the best possible decision and choice. And, and all they can do is best with with what they have. And well, that, that's where I would actually intervene, interject and say that um, there are ways to evaluate who is actually best suited versus who is not. Because you can look at the record of people making decisions and, and see whether they know what they're talking about or not. They should be able to articulate even complicated matters to non-specialists in ways that are understandable and not merely dismiss the inquiries as well you don't know any better that doesn't mean that every regular person is going to be an expert on the contrary but experts should be able to explain their thought process and they should be able to address specific research and point to their findings and people who deserve to have authority for for their records should be people who are constantly re-evaluating questioning their own findings and their own course of actions and who have 
could have results to show for it, not just titles, not just uh, claims. Oh, well, I've been recognized by so and so, and I have 10 PhDs and uh, membership on you know five boards, therefore, I'm automatically entitled to the authority. No, that's a logical fallacy, it's an appeal to, to titles, to authority, and not to evidence of the fact that you course correction. Are you able to make a compelling argument? Are you able to present your own evidence? And are you able to answer critical questions by your opponents? That's how you figure out who is actually for real and who does not, who acquired their titles and, you know, whatever else, simply by virtue of being in the right circles and, uh, were, uh, and saying the right things to the right people. I found a lot of them actually bring up things like the economy when it comes to making decisions. So whether it's the climate crisis, food, whatever else, they always seem to relate it to the economy, even for a short time. You know, they always bring it mm -hmm. up is what I found. And is it because a lot of people are more financially motivated? So if something's good for the economy, that is then causing the assumption that it's better for them as an individual financially and a lot of people are money driven you know we get jobs that pay right we get things that are possibly you know cheaper than the value that we attach to them that sort of thing it, it's making me think that a lot of a lot of it is driven by the things that motivate the individual like if we weren't so money motivated maybe they'd have to find something else to justify their actions as opposed to mentioning the economy all the time to make us think that oh it's good for the economy therefore you know maybe i'll be more financially better off if i if i did do this thing um is that kind of what it boils down to like they're trying to find out what motivates us as people and then try and find a way of linking it to that to encourage us to agree that's kind of the impression that i'm getting I wouldn't put it quite so negatively, but I do think that financial well-being is up there on the hierarchy of social needs. So if you look even at collectivist societies, even there, and I would say especially there, actually, material concerns come uh, as the very basis of argumentation. Um, you will not, you will not think that you know social or pseudo, you know, semi-socialist states or welfare states forget communism that that you know we we, we have seen the poverty uh uh wrought upon by the governments but even uh, relatively well of uh quasi-socialist welfare states i would say like uh um uh um like scandinavian countries that you know they would not last very long if they did not provide for their constituents uh, the very reason why uh, why those forms of governments work, work at all is because to some extent they do satisfy material concerns. They do not make their argumentations by appeal to one's higher nature, but by the fact that it works in addressing material interests of the public. Uh, no matter who you are and how you argue, you know, whether they are, you're a diehard, you know, capitalist or free or free marketer, which is a little bit different, or, you know, a quasi-socialist pro-welfare state person, you're still going to be driven uh, by this basic need to address material concerns to make sure people don't starve to death and that their needs are met and they have their basic needs. Anything above, beyond that is, you know, people wanting to have a better life. Now, what they do with it afterwards? Do they use their power to improve society, which is in their interest because, 
the better off society in general, the less likely you are to face a threat of some sort, crime, uh, you know, attacks by uh, foreign, you know, actors, uh, some sort of a mass, you know, upheaval or mass disaster, you are better prepared to meet them. It's in your best interest to invest into society and make sure that people's material needs are met and also their social other needs are met because people who are well uh, situated mentally as well as physically who are satisfied they create better societies so there is a self-interest even in that but it's not just but then there are people who are just greedy who are short-term thinkers who don't think far beyond their own immediate needs so they are not actually driven by self-interest as by instincts and by uh, by short-term thinking self-interest means you want to live in a better society you don't want to your house to just be nice because you still don't want to go outside and look at the wreckage around you in one nice mansion it's not going to be it's not going to be good for your property value <laughs> no i think that that's something that's worth echoing a little because you can be so focused on your own health and well-being and financial security prospering all that sort of thing but if everybody else around you is suffering that's not going to make for a good walk locally you know you go outside and everyone's probably hating you to a certain degree and I think that that's a part of it is your own full life satisfaction and prospering overlaps into somebody else's so you being in a financial and socially prospering place will inevitably impact somebody else. It might make them feel happier, less happy, whatever it is. You know, like the more you have, the more you can give in a way. And that, that may have some kind of impact. But I wonder what your thoughts are on things like, I mean, we can talk as big a topic as you like. But so far, the thing that people seem to have a hard time with is getting along I read it um whether it's being dead polarizing on things like social media or politics or everything's like one idea and if you disagree with it then you're this kind of person and I feel like everyone is trying to just find a reason to disagree and not like somebody else but equally you're trying to find things that people can relate to you on, things that people agree with you on, so then you can then build the relationship with it based on likes and dislikes and all those things. But I feel like since social media came along, it's been easier than ever to find people that are like us, find people that we agree with certain issues with and then get along with in that kind of a way. But then you could step outside your house and none of those people are nearby. <laughs> so you'll have like a, a virtual environment that's more fulfilling and more confirming than the offline one. And that can be quite difficult for people to navigate. I can't tell you how many times I've had to come across people that agree with me online and then I go offline and it's like no one's around that would agree with me on this particular topic. And I think that's what's causing a bit of a divide in a way as well. Like online and offline don't match. And they can't in a way because you just find like-minded people online and you can all be in different parts of the world and you never have to meet. And that's okay. But then when you go outside and you've got to navigate conversations with actual people face-to-face -face and being able to handle that, even though you might disagree on something, 
seems to be difficult for a lot of people, Irina, and I can't quite put my finger on why, but it's a problem for, for some people. They're having a hard time navigating this thing that we've created called disagreeing in an okay way and being okay with other people that have different viewpoints than you. And I kind of feel like this whole idea of getting along with each other has become more difficult. And maybe it's just because it's what I'm exposed to. Maybe it's because of <clears throat> Twitter. And I do kind of think that we need to have a way of helping people get along better. Helping people maybe be more understanding. Helping people maybe be a bit more empathetic or compassionate or just try and help people get along, Irina. I think people need a way of being able to get along together. So I, I think what what you say has a lot of truth of truth to it but there is an explanation for all uh, social media has created this false sense of security in one's own positions or in their rightness and correctness and or their or the fact that your agreement should be the priority in your relationship with people as opposed to other factors just natural affinity even if you do disagree uh morals principles ethics how you treat other human beings um your character these aristotelian principles of friendship as opposed to more shallow inter common interests of political positions which may shift over time by the way because people grow and they evolve and actually it's not necessarily a good thing to be so entrenched in one's political or, other, or social views that you cannot not bear pa see past your own perspective and you need to surround yourself with like-minded people to enforce it is that a real relationship or is it just your own ego trying to enforce uh confirmation bias through convenient by surrounding yourself with convenient placed people and by the way from my personal experience the virtual relationship is that works best and once that stop being virtual and you meet people in real life and you develop relationships past just this shallow um back and forth online when you see yourself as a full person with your life with the difficulty when you humanize as opposed to idealize uh then it becomes a relationship with an attachment with meaning with purpose when you're ready to um go out of your way to help another person and find satisfaction in that as opposed to inconvenience of having to travel somewhere and to meet another human being so i think the i think we need to shift the meaning the view of what creates meaningful uh relationships as opposed to satisfying or just happy relationship because this feeling of immediate satisfaction of just seeing what you like immediately this doesn't last very long it doesn't last lifelong because people change they encounter difficulties whether as families as friends as business partners or however you relate and it's your ability to see into each other's character and 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 humanity that can, allows you to transgress those difficulties and to find meaning and purpose in fellowship is there a way that we can actually encourage people to humanize people a little bit more? Is there anything that you can think of that will help people with that? Because I've started to do certain things online that has made a big difference. I'm trying to see people as, you know, they've got hobbies, they've got pets. You start to see a bigger picture of the person rather than just what they're values and belief system is around certain topics just their opinions on what they think is right about a particular issue 
And I think that, that that's helped in a way. It's helped me because you can often see people and see the things that they are posting online and that creates the entire picture of what you think of them, even though they probably have, you know, pets or hobbies or they've got a weird sense of humor or whatever the case is there's, there's more to them that meets the virtual eye and is there anything that can help people do that anything that can help with humanizing people virtually which i would guess would impact them in the real world or, or offline as well i think in whether in real world or in uh, social media world the more we jointly for our efforts to help other people in need, the more we focus on somebody else and less on our own um, likes and dislikes and political positions, the more we can overcome these boundaries and the less we see people as enemies because of different political positions and more like people we could potentially work together on this one other issue, even if we don't agree on on everything politically or socially or religiously or whatever else the more these devices become less relevant because you can focus your efforts on things that matter to you both that you do find in common and that help you accomplish jointly something positive regardless of where you stand elsewhere and that's how that's what makes it difficult more difficult for demagogues to exploit to polarize to drive people and to reduce them even to themselves to their you know, one or two political positions and make them embittered and actually create this self-perpetuating circle of negativity and division and, quite frankly, hostility. How do you think people can actually have a disagreement or a conversation after a disagreement? So let's say, I don't know, we might disagree on climate change. Let's just mm-hmm. Well, then we might go out for a drink one day, knowing that we disagree on the climate change issue that we're facing right now. I mean, I don't think I'd have a problem with that, Irina, being quite honest. But then some people would sit there and go, no, I can't. They they disagree with me on the climate change idea, and therefore I can't be in the same room with them. And it's like it's become so intense. It's become so emotionally charged Mm -hmm. that... I'd, I'd have a drink with someone that supported something that I hated. And it's okay. Why? Well, we don't talk about it if we don't want to then cause an argument. You know, it's got to be known we disagree ahead of time. Why would we bring it up? You know, it doesn't make sense in my head. It doesn't make sense to say, right, disagree on climate change. I mean, it seems quite nice. We'll have a drink one day. Go, oh, what about this climate change thing, Irina? How dare you possibly think that we need to... It doesn't make any... It's almost like we're creating the problem if we know it's happening ahead of time and yet we still do it it's almost like banging your leg on a table and then blaming the table it doesn't make any sense how can we get to a point where we can disagree on some things agree on other things and still kind of get by knowing the disagreement it's like we're so emotional about it we get so intense about it that everything else is ignored we just kind of ignore the good bits and only focus on the bad bits 
I think part of the growing personal growth and just part of growing up is shifting away from black and white thinking and gaining enough humility to understand the limitations of your own knowledge and your own perspectives and being open-minded and intellectually curious, open to hearing other views and open to being wrong or potentially changing your views or understanding that no not one person is you know an expert on every single issue and even if they're an expert on this one issue they can still be wrong and you can still be wrong and you can still reevaluate your own thinking and frankly even if the other person is wrong does it really matter so much uh, as long as they're trying in good faith to to do something positive if they're wrong you know, the future, the studies will show that they're wrong. And if you're if you're wrong, you'll likewise you you'll find out in due time and you can always change your mind based on new information. In the meantime, you have room for discussion, for presentation of different facts, for explanation why you find your position important and compelling, but also listen to what else out there in the world to make the important, compelling, interesting, enjoyable, and meaningful. You don't have to make it all about being right because uh, in the end of the day, okay, you were right. What, is, what does it change? Unless the one and only decision maker pushing the, the red button somewhere, at the end of the day, it's not, it's not, it doesn't really make that much of a difference. You know, you could argue your way into trying to shift someone's position because you you would think it will get them to do an activity that's meaningful but at the end of the day you have to ask yourself why does it matter so much what another person believes why not focus on your own actions and doing what what's meaningful uh for you for that cause and let other people uh enjoy what they they find meaningful important and in the end you will see if you put a very positive example and if you achieve results that are demonstrably uh good that person may choose to follow your path regardless just by by seeing a positive example you don't need to harangue and uh, dehumanize people that's not a good way of persuading anyone anyway i actually picture dehumanizing and my head actually goes to, you know, when you mentioned the red button, I think that that's like the ultimate in dehumanizing. Like if you sort of think about doing something bad, doing it physically with your hands is so much harder to do than pressing a button on the other side of the world. Mm -hmm. You can detach from it. You can dehumanize it. It doesn't really impact you in the same way. And there's a part of me that thinks that that's the way the world's gone everyone's got a button on the other end of the world they can do what they want say what they want believe what they want argue online and nothing really happens to you and i wonder if that's gone on for so long that people have started to almost ingrain it into a part of who they are that you can say anything and i mean to be fair recently with things like tweets causing people to lose their jobs it's actually starting to make a shift way back when you could say what you want and nothing would happen where now people are starting to lose their jobs over tweets and and things like that and it's it's becoming more important what you say and the things that you do and the actions that you take and i'm kind of hoping it keeps going i don't think people should lose their jobs over a tweet but i do think that, that there should be consequences to your actions and I'm actually quite glad that they're starting to impact people virtually as well. 
because otherwise you'd be able to shout about anything and nothing would happen to you. No matter how hurtful it would be, people would still just get away with it and nothing would happen, nothing would change. And I'm starting to see that shift a little bit. But I think there are still people out there that will say anything, do anything virtually because they don't think anything bad will come of it. And people are just starting to test it, I think. The amount of people that start saying, oh, such and such a social media account has been censoring me or whatever it is and it makes me think was it because you're like shouting about something that's ridiculous or you've got an opinion that's been founded on a few weirdos get together in a dark room somewhere and form a club kind of opinion and it, it doesn't help the situation when we live that way for so long like when it first started, it was a game. You know, we'd have a laugh, we'd meet new people, we'd join blogs, we'd mm-hmm. just have fun with it. And now all of a sudden it's become this world-changing, life-changing industry. Um, and some people are better at navigating it than others, I must say. But I think we we get into a point where things have to change or we need to improve as you said the whole personal growth idea people need to actually change as people to be able to navigate this in a healthier way whether we all get along better whether we make better decisions whether we self-censor and I'm actually quite I've got a weird opinion on self-censoring because I've not really had to experience it all that much but Mm -hmm. I think that you can keep things to yourself if you want to. It should be a mm-hmm. choice. It shouldn't have to be called self-censoring. It should just be called deciding about what to and what not to share. I think everyone is allowed to do that, really. I don't think you should be forced to say whatever is on your mind all the time. Because I think that can be quite dangerous as well. Oh, I agree completely, but I don't think we need to be... I think consequences don't, don't, shouldn't have to mean we live in a society driven by fear of saying the wrong thing. I think natural empathy and compassion for not hurting other people's feelings or explaining your position in a way that's fact-based rather than personal, that should be uh, the, 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 the starting point for conversations, but it shouldn't really be... I need your reaction. Oh, well, what if I say something and I get fired or get blocked? That is not a good internal motivator, maybe for some people, but that's not a good way to have a mature society that can discuss serious issues in an open Mm -hmm. and transparent way. Because then all we do is create a a censorious surveillance state or self-surveillance state where people are not acting out of compassion, not out of meaningful they're not sincere in what they're doing and eventually they stop talking about anything meaningful at all for fear of something actually a lot of this consequence has led exactly to that result people have not become more compassionate as a result of greater exercise they just become more angry and they then and and they project their anger on third and third parties on social media platforms and people reporting their comments on jobs, being excessively uh, snoopy about things that, you know, outside their things, they don't blame, they don't necessarily, it hasn't caused them to become more self-reflective. It hasn't changed or improved behavior. Um, 
uh, but social media with the algorithms driving the most controversial form of discourse that is part of the problem because it does validate and it does reward more extreme behavior and it rewards driving people to controversy rather than highlighting uh, serious and thoughtful debates and discussions. So that is part of a technical issue that needs to be corrected by the platforms. But the people themselves, I think the yes, pe people should not be become so uh, so self-centered that they lack compassion for anyone with different views than themselves. That's part of the problem, part of the technical nature. But I don't think greater level of consequence or punishment will necessarily change that. I just don't think that sort of deterrence works very well for adults. And um, and if it does, it means that they're not fully, that's the only thing that does. It means they're not fully mature adults and we're dealing with a, an emotionally stunted society um, that, you know, gets off from being offended as opposed to thinking and uh, arguing. I think we need to bring bait uh bring bring back the idea of healthy regulated debating like debate societies with the rules and logic and train people how to do that and make that part of the norm and part of the culture and, and change the culture through positive incentives and reward a logical approach and uh, an informed approach and a thoughtful approach what do you think about the, the idea that it was probably intended to allow for things like debate and thinking and possibly changing people's minds and helping them refine their thoughts and things of that nature and and all the kind of things that would make for a healthy society and a healthy debate, but it's not gone that way. Is that accurate? Do you think they went in with, okay, let's go for the best of intentions here. We need to encourage people to get along even though they might disagree and then ads came in and financial backing came in and the fact that there's a financial incentive towards keeping people in these confirming echo chambers and things of that nature because then the ads can target those people as well and it drives the the revenue model that a lot of these systems tend to be built around do you think that has anything to do with it and would you say that we can actually have a society that you talked about that's open to debate and critical thinking and helping people make their own decisions and get along even if we disagree. Do you think that that's actually possible with the system that we have where it just needs to be used better by people like us, humans, you know, the, the general public trying to... Because I get a funny feeling that it's a very short step from being fear-driven to being compassion-driven and empathy-driven, because the actions might look similar, but it's the intention behind it, it's the mindset behind it that's kind of making us healthier. You know, like we're doing similar things, but we're healthier while we do them. We have a more effective way of governing ourselves, I guess, while taking certain steps. And I wonder if it's possible to make that shift from being fear-based to compassion-based, to be more empathetic and trying to have these debates. What do you think about all of that? Is it actually doable? Is it possible? Do you think that they went in with that kind of intention to start with and because us being people and we're flawed and plenty of flaws as well, it's not gone that way. 
like they wanted it to be that way, but it's not. Well, unfortunately, I tend to have a darker look at the situation because I think the issue is not just with ads. I think a lot of these things are responsive to what works. And what works is emotional manipulation rather than argumentative debate. If you're a demagogue wanting to amass as many followers or uh, to, to, to get people to buy into your product, it's a much easier path to press against the emotions than to engage in logic-based debates. More and it's people are more responsive to emotions, and I think that's where the education has become emotion and feelings driven as opposed to driven by logic and the need to provide evidence and to and to have discussions and to move away from emotions. Actually, I think more compassionate societies are driven more by logic and less by emotions because getting to the point when everyone is offended by everything uh, drives anger, not compassion. When people are completely uh, offense drives anger and lack of compassion. When whereas when you are motivated by logic, you look at the other person and whatever their motivations, you tend to look at facts and not dehumanize them. You tend to look at their positions and not see them necessarily as a bad person just because they have a different position. And your goal is to change their mind, not to not 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 to belittle uh, them personally. So do you think the actual problem is a human problem then? Because to be logical and unemotional when the system is built to trigger emotions, that's quite difficult to do. Well, then it depends on what emotions. I mean, if you see someone struggling or whatever the case is, you're more likely to be compassionate towards them. But then if you're shown something that frustrates you and angers you, you don't think there's an element of it doesn't have to trigger you to become angry and things like that and that's one part of the problem the other part of it is we we defined what it means to struggle we've reduced it to a particular set of criteria but the reality is everyone struggles every human being wealthy wealthy or poor or middle class or white or black or mixed heritage or you know uh, professors and janitors they all struggling with something they all have they all have these uh concerns about they want to be everyone wants to be loved and cared for and valued and uh, they have fears and concerns about death about health about losing their loved ones and uh, this is something we need to redefine from looking at what struggle means to understanding human condition beneath these struggles and that people no matter what you think they have they also lack something else or don't always use what they have correctly or they can be besotted by unexpected calamities and nothing that they seem to have will necessarily you know they, they still need support and compassion there's value in providing people who are struggling no matter who they are to to actualize as human beings to to make the best of themselves the i think we've come to reduce the word struggle and hardship to a very convenient set of criteria and that actually in itself is also dehumanizing. I think the ability to humanize is probably one of the things that may shortcut all of this. I mean, I wonder what your thoughts are, Irina, where we think, okay, we've said all of that, we've discussed it, there's a lot of things in there that some people will agree with, some people probably won't, but then my head 
jumps all the way to the end and thinks, okay, well, what's the solution then? Like, what's the way that we can actually get past all of this and get along and help each other rather than hurt each other and be happy rather than stressed and fearful and scared and angry all the time? What would you say was a practical solution to all this i mean my head actually goes to get rid of all social media and move on or we have a life outside of it but then there's so much money in the system now that i also disagree with that because i don't think it'll ever actually go away it'll just become something different with a lot more iron in the fire and skin in the game and everyone will be involved and i don't think we'll necessarily go back is what i think and I wonder if there's a way we can actually move forward with a healthier outlook and feel better about ourselves while doing it. Well, I think we cannot control what happens to larger systems. But as if with anything, think globally, act locally. You want to change, start with yourself, with your own attitude and how you use the social media. Don't let other people manipulate you. Don't channel your anger into pointless plain words channel it in if you have anger or any emotion or passion or change into being persuasive into providing facts and providing them with passion with zeal but also uh with restraint and balance and considering other people's points of views restraint is not a bad thing people look at it as with disdain but it doesn't mean being less compassionate less passionate less feeling less it means uh, how you demonstrate it in public and abstaining from damaging acts show your zeal through something that's constructive and that's helpful not through something that will um cause damage it's a it's a quality it's a, there is something to be you know to cultivate in class in how you behave in public and and sometimes being yourself means being you know taking more control of yourself and your emotions and projecting them into something that will that that will be helpful and will not drive away or hurt your audience but attract people to actually listen to what you what you have to say um and you can't change all social media by yourself but the more people that set out seeing other reasonable people behaving reasonably the more there is a social constraint on, on not wanting to to be seen as a clown or as someone who is uh you know not behaving so appropriately in a social setting uh and that sort of quote-unquote self-censorship natural comes in and the more people don't want to be in a room with people being rude and argumentative for no reason, the more there's pressure on social media companies to change the way they operate. Because if they're if they fail in driving people apart, if the if this model fails and they see that people are no longer buying into what makes it work, which is algorithms driven driving emotion and clickbait, and that people reward with visibility and with interest more reasonable and more tactful and more thoughtful positions then they will have to change how they operate themselves because there will be a completely different public demand and they will lose they will lose followers and they will lose people and this natural social reward will operate differently as well it's almost like if we change how we operate as people the bigger companies will notice that and, exactly. and, and take steps 
and you can't it's going to take a long time and it's self-regulation but it's it is possible because social media as with anything else is a tool you can blame the tool for how it's made but at the end of the day it's always up to an individual person and how you use it are you going to take care of it are you just going to uh, uh, you know if you have a weapon are you going to leave it lying around unattended or are you going to use it for its intended purposes and only then and make sure that it's carefully and that it's put away afterwards it's up to you it's not up to the manufacturer so at the end of the day um, uh, with social media as well yes the social media companies may be motivated by money making agenda but if they find a different way of making money based on a different criteria they'll have to adjust to to that if they're no longer making money from that and they're making money from a different set of human behavior they'll be driven in that direction yeah, I think sometimes it's easy to forget that we create the content for these channels for the most part. So if we think social media, if we think TV, if we think radio, if we think even like newspapers, magazines, you name it, they're created by people. It's not automatically like generated. If it's a video of someone discussing climate change, someone's recording that video. It's a person, it's, it's a, a fellow human. I hope, unless it's some kind of AI doing the whole thing. <laughs> you never know these days with that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you never know. So it, it's making me realize that there's a lot in the system that requires the person to change. It requires the human to actually change and adjust and not react emotionally, try to be a bit more logically and a bit more reasonable, I suppose you could say. And I think the, I think I mentioned it before about things becoming very intense. And I wonder if it's about trying to dial that intensity down. Now it doesn't do well for ads. It doesn't do well for revenue, followers, (laughs) attention. But I mean, for the most part, we need to be able to sacrifice something for something better and i think that that's that's a part of it in my mind is look you don't have to have millions of followers by being angry all the time or millions of followers by being emotional frustrated airing out your grievances or whatever the case is I i think there's a difference between that and then still getting the attention that you deserve and all the rest of it by being reasonable and being factual and being accurate and being entertaining in a way and just trying not to bend to the will of of these bigger organizations and things of that nature you know when you just sort of think we need to be a bit more human rather than be a bit more i don't know i, I don't like it's almost like we're becoming the content that we're consuming but they're all intense. That's all polarizing. That's all this, that, mm-hmm. and the other thing. And then it bleeds over into our own personality and our own character because it's the only thing that we're consuming over and over and over and over again. And I don't blame people for it. It's the world that we've created. I don't blame the individual person for it. I blame everything together in this mush that we call life. And it's like the consequences of that are becoming noticeable now. Like at first, it was just kind of bubbling up. But since things like the pandemic and 
everyone's apparently now equally valid in their opinions, which is a frightening concept. Um, I'd rather I'd rather get a scientist's opinion than you know. David but then ask the yourself shop. about the studies as well, and whether science is always correct, and whether science is always you know science evolves also. Scientists can be wrong, and they should be able to admit that they are wrong, or that they or you end up like that Alzheimer's study where people were invested in the wrong thing for twenty years and now have to start all over again. So there should be humility in every process. There should be open-mindedness and there should be, as I said, validation for real expertise, for results, for the approach, for the attitude and for the for the willingness to show your work and not just for basically, you know, utilizing title as a way to shut down any debated discussion. I think this is what actually drives people to anti-scientific and anti and further polarizing and anti-expertise-based attitudes when they feel like the field itself has become manipulated, polluted, not to further truth, but to end debate and discussion and to create fake consensus on issues that cannot ever, nor should they have full consensus. There should be a constant argumentation and show valid, valid process and facts and constant requirement to demonstrate. That's by nature, whether it's science or or political um, some sort of political position there should be transparency there should be inquiry there should be intellectual process and i think the more you dismiss uh, the more it backfires because then people become easily manipulated by conspiracy theories and because they still seek answers they still seek truth they still seek some sort of fulfillment and they have an intellectual need to get those answers from somewhere and if they feel dismissed then they will go to the sources that give them what they think they want i completely agree with that and i think we need a bit more humanity i think we need to be much more understanding and compassionate and just try not to just take everything at face value as well i i started to realize that you never know absolutely everything about a person, a situation, an organization, a company. It's almost like looking at life through a keyhole in a way. And you only see so much. You only know so much. And you've got to be open to the idea of that in a way. Like it's crazy how accepting you become when you realize you're looking at life through a keyhole and you're not going to know everything, see anything, do anything all the time. You know, you don't know the whole story. You don't know all of anything. But I think this is, there's, this is also a beautiful part of being a human being because you may not have the full answer to any puzzle. You can only have a piece, but other people do. And by collaborating, by reaching out, by asking questions, you can get more answers. You may not always want to or need to. You have to limit and choose what you're interested about. You know, you cannot be an expert on every issue. But if there are some things that arouse your interest at any particular point of time, there are ways of moving forward and investigating and becoming more involved. And it's a good thing because, you know, there's always openness to change and become pursuing unexpected directions. And you don't know how to affect your life and and maybe open your mind to opportunities that you never would have thought otherwise. 
Yeah, I, I completely echo that. I completely agree. And I think that the more of this that we have, that'll hopefully lead to the consequences that we want. It'll lead to the impact that we want, the effect that it has on people. And I I hope we all find a way of getting along. I mean, I really do. I, th- I think it's possible. I think that it's doable. But I think it takes a lot of work. And I think that those that are, are able to do it, I think they'll feel the benefit, definitely. I think they'll feel better about themselves and others and hopefully a bit more optimistic about their own situation so they don't feel so compelled to shout at others for want of a better expression. I think we need to find a way of being happier. And you know what? The secret that I've learned along the way is, you know, sometimes more work, more having to struggle through something, taking the time to understand something, it's more avoiding than getting the answer right away, even if it's you get this immediate satisfaction. Because you gain detail along the way that allows you to savor the process and make take more of it and have it last longer than something that you get right away and forget about immediately thereafter while yearning for the next thing. You get to enjoy the process, you get to explore other opportunities, and you know what? More work ultimately means the result is also more rewarding. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I I really enjoyed the conversation that we've had. I've enjoyed having one as a guest, Irina. It's been fantastic. For those that want to learn more about you, enter your world a little bit, where can they go? Well, uh, you, I have several websites, Scarab Rising, this is my company, is one of them, scarabrising.com, and uh, basically this is where I provide my services. The Washington Outsider is where, uh, just washingtonoutsider.com, uh, one word, uh, it's the website connected to Scarab Rising, where I try to give voices to different perspectives that are not always welcomed in the mainstream um yeah i also have a youtube channel for the washington outsider i do a podcast focused on global and national issues called the washington outsider report it's featured on the youtube channel as well you can see the recordings it runs on the coalition radio based in rhode island in the u.s and uh it comes out tuesday nights at 9 p.m and then it goes to uh, YouTube. So, and I also have a Substack where I collect my media appearances and sometimes also write issues that I don't publish elsewhere that have to do with uh, my work process that people will be curious about. Thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Those that are listening, feel free to subscribe, share the show, tell others, and also leave a review wherever you are listening in to your podcasts. Irina, thanks so much for joining me, and I look forward to keeping in touch. Thank you. Thank you so much. If you want to join a group of like-minded people that are all out to achieve their goals, their dreams, their aspirations, and they get the help and support from me and the other members, then my inner circle is for you. There's a link in the description for this episode to get two months free of the inner circle so you set your membership up you get two months free access hopefully i'll see you there and i look forward to helping you on your journey of achieving the life that you want